to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together, talk about movies. We are deep in our biopic month and uh, we're continuing this week with my pick. But before we do, just want to go around the horn, see how people are doing. How, uh, how are you guys doing? Have you seen anything good? I'm feeling uncertain. Christine. Oh, so tell me more. Two <laughs> trailers so far for the Super Mario Brothers movie. Made by Illumination in partnership with Nintendo. Illumination made uh, the Minion movies, Despicable Me, the weird-looking Grinch movie. And it looks kind of good. Chris Pratt, controversially, is Mario. Uh, Jack Black is Bowser. Charlie Day is Luigi. Anya Taylor-Joy is Peach. Uh, Seth Rogen, I believe, is Donkey Kong. So it's quite an eclectic cast. Remember when animated movies were voiced by voice actors yeah <laughs> uh but from the two trailers does it look like garbage it looks visually kind of interesting i don't know i don't know if it's the music that's playing you know pulling on my nostalgic heartstrings but after watching the two trailer it comes out sometime next year i think uh like in the first half of the year I don't know. The two trailers kind of have me sold that it could be something interesting. And apparently, uh, for folks listening, if you have any interest at all in this movie, you should look up the international dubs. uh, Because the guy, the French actor who's voicing Mario, sounds amazing. Uh, So it's been interesting people comparing Chris Pratt to the different international dubs. Uh, has has been interesting. So I'm feeling conflicted because it should be garbage, but it looks interesting. Well, you've piqued my interest. Uh, maybe I should just skip the American release and wait for the French release and just uh, hear the better voice acting. <laughs> but Chris Pratt doesn't sound terrible in the second trailer. Like, I don't know. Like, Chris Pratt, I, I've kind of fallen off the... He's quickly became the lowest tier Chris in Hollywood for me. But he actually, it's not the train wreck that everyone thought it would be. At least from the, the second trailer sounded a little more convincing. So I don't know. Maybe it'll be a butter with that pick one day in the far future. Who knows? I guess to Dave's point, it's sad that at this point, like, well, this famous person isn't terrible at this voice acting opportunity. So maybe we should see it. It's like, that's the standard now. <laughs> It's been going on for a while. Yeah, it's a bit of a bummer. Not to like switch gears completely, uh, but I watched Smile with my roommates and um, my dad like hounded me to watch it. He was like, please, I will give you my login for this. You need to watch this movie. I was like, okay, okay. I enjoyed it. It was definitely fucked up. I don't know. Yeah, I like. Wasn't this the movie people were like, ah, like I'm vomiting in the theater. I'm this. I'm that. I, I don't understand that perspective. It was if it was actually this movie, but I, I thought it was pretty good. I also saw Smile and forgot to bring that up. Um, I, yeah. I thought it was yeah, pretty pretty good. There were tons of jump scares, but the moments it's it's pretty blatantly inspired by It Follows. 
uh, in many ways. And I love It Follows. So it has some of that core DNA that those moments, I think, work. Uh, there's a scene with her therapist toward the end of the movie that is truly terrifying. And the ending is really wonky. So I recommend Smile for folks who are interested in horror movies. I don't think most folks will be disappointed in what's offered. I feel like I couldn't really say like, oh, yeah, this was a great movie because of how much it ripped off. It follows whether or not it's like an actual ripoff, but it's it like it literally is the same concept. And I also didn't as you know, I'd rather movies not have animals in them if they're just going to serve as like a death shock and awe device. I knew as soon as we saw the cat a second time, I was like, mother fucker first of all the cat's name was mustache and i had to go to does the dog die.com and it tells you like if animals do die not just the dog and it was like yes there is a dead body and i was like son of a bitch in the movie's defense no there's they didn't actually kill the cat <laughs> well they didn't really the, it it's up in the air if it's re i, I thought uh, okay. it was pulled off wet like Boo. Not 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 to have this is episode's not about smile, but I'd be very curious, Sam, off air to talk more about smile. Well, uh from um deranged uh therapist to um Paul Danu, we got some things that are tying into this week's episode. Um one thing that I did see uh over the past few days and over the Thanksgiving break was uh Spielberg's new semi-autobiographical or pretty autobiographical offering, the Fablemans which um, I was looking forward to, but skeptical of. I think, Christine, you were, you were saying something effective based on the trailer, um, that it does seem very um, saccharine or, or very um, overly sentimental and melodramatic, which it is. And it also has, uh, you know, larger than life, uh, bigger than real characterization and characters. But uh, I mean, you know, that's not outside of Spielberg's wheelhouse or oeuvre and not the kind of thing that I don't expect from him. So frankly, as far as a, a Spielberg Spielberg doing Spielberg, uh, I was very satisfied and I found it to be, um, he had worked on it. Uh, the script along with another of his co-writers, um, whose name I forget right now, which is embarrassing, but, uh, he's worked with them before, but it definitely felt like a seasoned and, you know, iconic director writing a script to be directed, which, um, you know, if it's going to be Spielberg doing it, well, you know, in, in my opinion, turns into very, uh, very interesting and very illuminating results. So um, I really enjoyed it. Oh, wow. Tony Kushner was the co-writer. There you go. Yes. Spielberg and Tony Kushner. Wrote? That's impressive. Yeah. I mean, getting Tony Kushner on something. Well, didn't Tony Kushner do West Side Story with Spielberg? Last yeah, season? yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, and then he wrote Angels in America many years ago. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's funny. Yeah. I think, you know, the Fablemans, Armageddon time, uh, Belfast last year, it's like all of these like older mature director. Well, I guess James Gray is not even like in the Spielberg realm, but like a bunch of like memoir -y movies. And I was like, Oh, like everyone's coming out with their memoir movie. And, it's, and I thought this would get lost in the shuffle, but you piqued my interest, Dave. So I'll probably, I'll probably check it out. I'd say everything you've heard about it being very sentimental is true, but, uh, <laughs> which I love, but, I love good sentimental, but more, more layered and interesting than the trailer lets on at the very least. 
Yeah. Um, cool. Well, good to know. Um, I think I shared a lot about my Crovember last week, so I think you guys are pretty much up to speed. Uh, got about one more day of Crovember. We'll see what I watch and I'll share it next week. And, uh, yeah, so let's get into this week's movie. So as I mentioned, we are in the middle of biopic month, had some, uh, great convos about kind of what makes a biopic. We had talked about Eddie the Eagle last week. And for this week I picked, uh, since the other one I wanted to talk about is literally nowhere to be found on the internet, which is like, what the fuck? But, uh, yeah, maybe I'll, you know, get it available some other time we can talk about it. But, that's one um, of your top 100s, too. That's, yeah. <laughs> this being Jane Campion's bright star. Yeah. This being Jane Campion's bright star, uh, which, yeah, um, is just beauty. Uh, but so then I was kind of thinking, I actually, a little bit in trying to figure out what my backup pick was, I realized that I really don't love the biopic genre. But so, and then it, I feel like sometimes it can be like, limited by the sort of constraints of trying to cover somebody's whole life, or at least, um, you know, the different narrative beats that biopics a lot of times decide to display, get kind of tropey. But I do remember uh, a biopic that I watched uh, when it came out in 2014 that I, I really enjoyed, uh, which was Love and Mercy, basically about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. I also recently watched uh, a little documentary about Brian Wilson and some uh, in-person interviews he did with a journal like Rolling Stone journalist uh, who would just drive around L.A. and talk to Brian Wilson and have him just talk about his memories, about like all the houses he lived in. I kind of just went down this Beach Boys rabbit hole recently, like listening to Beach Boys albums and like. So I think all of that is to say uh, decided might be fun to talk about. this movie, Love and Mercy, where Brian Wilson is actually played by two different actors. Uh, the movie depicts 1960s Brian Wilson, played by Paul Dano, uh, who Dave brought up earlier, and then 1980s Brian, Brian Wilson, played by John Cusack. A quick little synopsis, the movie highlights, as I mentioned, these two really formative periods in Brian Wilson's life. Uh, the 1960s, specifically around the release of Pets of the Album, Pet Sounds. And then it jumps uh, into the 1980s when Brian Wilson's life had kind of derailed. Uh, He had spent at least what he had said three years just in bed. And unfortunately, his life really had fallen under the control of a a therapist and sort of life coach, Dr. Eugene Landy, who basically became his legal guardian and all the complications that came with that. And I was thinking, like, although this movie definitely does hit some, like, biopic tropes, uh, sort of the rise and fall of this, you know, iconic figure, I thought uh, the elements that really make this movie stand out uh, are in the attention the film plays to Wilson's really unique relationships to sound, songwriting, and specifically the studio musicians who helped him record Pet Sounds. Um, And they were known as the Wrecking Crew. And they sort of were um, session musicians that worked with Elvis, wink, wink, uh, (laughs) and and other really, really iconic musicians. You can cut that out, Dave. I don't want to do spoilies. Um, oh well, we are. We already mentioned a movie this month that's deranged. This one's going to top <laughs> it. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> no spoilies. Um, but yeah, so 
And I thought that both Paul Dano uh, and John Cusack really approached the role with nuance and tenderness and kind of capture the essence of a musician whose immense creative sensitivity, real sensitivity, I would say, uh, helped him write, you know, uh, one of the best uh, records of the 20th century, but also really made him vulnerable um, to invasive thoughts, drug addiction, and then find himself in really exploitive personal relationships. And um, so the movie kind of jumps back and forth to really understand, um, yeah, these two periods of his life and kind of his support network, his band, and then later on, um, who will be his second wife, Melinda Ledbetter, played by Elizabeth Banks. So that's a little bit about Love and Mercy. Um, Yeah, so... To the Butter Crew, what had you, had you guys seen this movie before? Um, what's your relationship to the Beach? Do you, do you give a shit about the Beach Boys? Was this something? These sounds that you grew up on, or maybe not? This was my second time seeing it, revisiting it for the podcast. Uh, Christine, years ago, you recommended this movie to me, and so I watched it. And so it was it was fun to go back and revisit. And when you suggested that, can't find Bright Star anywhere. Oh, I'll do Love and Mercy. I was so excited. <laughs> Um, to revisit this movie. And it definitely, um, I think, is a standout feature in so many ways that we'll get into. Paul Dano, we've talked about him again. He's a phenomenal actor. I think it's our first time talking about John Cusack on the podcast. That's I don't right. think he's been in any other movie in almost 200 episodes. So really love this movie. I think it's um, very phenomenal. And like many people, I'm not unique in this, but Pet Sounds is an incredibly influential album. Um, in my high school years. That is absolutely not an original thought or statement, but uh, I actually listened to most of the album this morning as I was getting up and um, getting ready to go to work. So I think the music is an excellent love letter to that seminal work and a really great exploration of who Brian Wilson is as a creator and as a person. And it kind of has its cake and eats it too with the rise and the fall tropinesses of biopic by picking two points in someone's life and honing in deep where it like it has everything that you'd want to cover in someone's whole life but by focusing on two very specific moments let's say a set of like five years it kind of can do everything that most biopics dream of covering in someone's life uh, my mother fucking hates the Beach Boys, and so <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up with that just fucking ingrained in me to the point where, like, I, I recognize some Beach Boy songs. I mean, like, it's impossible to live in this world and like have not heard them, but. I had no idea about, first of all, I didn't even know who Brian Wilson really was. Uh, I had no idea about anything that happens in his life and uh, don't really have it. <laughs> sounds so bad. Any respect for the music because, uh, and and this is why my mom hates the, the Beach Boys. I feel like I've even talked about this on the podcast before. And I I I tried to find the quote to see if it was actually real. I don't know, but my mom hates them because fucking one of them made a comment about the Beatles saying that they're like, eh, who cares about them? They're just a bunch of mop heads or whatever. And she's like, ever since then, I can't fucking stand the Beach Boys. And she'll be like, the Beach Boys. Um, so it's, it's just strange, you know, how, uh, hatred is really, um, intergenerational. 
<laughs> it, it can be. And what's even <laughs> what's even worse is I found myself not really responding to this movie because of that. And I I don't know why. I think that it's a decent movie. I think it was interesting, but I didn't care that much. And I, I feel bad because it seems like this poor dude like really went through it. But I was also like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not impressed. I am not, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, and I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. It's so funny you say that, Sam, because I grew up with a mother who hates the Beatles. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I can't fucking stand the Beatles. Oh my God. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and, and that was one of those things where I felt like, you know, friends of mine would like grow up with like parents who were like the Beatles. You got to love the Beatles. And like my mom was always like, I fucking hate the Beatles. I don't hear one more fucking Beatles song. I'll like, you know, whatever. But it, it also is interesting because I didn't also grow up like listening to the Beach Boys, but like these songs are everywhere. And what was interesting is I'm sort of like in a later stage in my life r- relationship, I guess, with these songs and I like can hear the songs that I and the bands that I like now that was clearly so influenced by the Beach Boys and so I think this point in my life I've sort of like been like wow I didn't really think much about the Beach Boys until maybe these past couple years how about you Dave what's your relationship to the BBs well um I really like I I really like the Beach Boys and I really like the Beatles uh (laughs) Which I suppose is uh, not the peacemaker among but, us. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the, the, I mean, to be to be perfectly honest, the Beach Boys early on were a band that I sort of um, did write off a little bit when I was like much younger. Like my grandmother would listen to them a lot, and um, I, I always felt it very repetitive and samey, especially their earlier material. Um, which, to be fair, in some ways, uh, it, it relatively speaking can be. But I mean, you know. Yeah, the grandeur of pet sounds and and smile the album that he finally finished that, that he intended to make after that uh that was repackaged as smiley smile is i think a masterpiece um so a, bi- a big fan uh went into this movie with with the relative knowledge of brian wilson but not like a really in-depth biography or anything that i've really absorbed in the past uh outside of my relative knowledge of you know his his struggle uh in the in the late 60s and early 70s and i i really kind of the things that I liked about this movie, I loved, um, especially like um, especially the earlier period that it covers the 60s, uh, the recording of Pet Sounds and the beginning of recording what would become Smiley Smile. And just like yeah, as, as someone who spent time in a studio, also like creating a layered like trying to create a layered work, seeing like crafting each individual, you know, part and stem file as, as they're referred to now, like every individual component. And tuning it toward each other, and and the 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 effect of layering, which naturally crescendos and, and broadens and enriches a piece, is so expertly explored uh, in those those sixties uh, periods uh, that the film covers. The one thing that I struggled with, though, was that it does feel like these are two different movies. Not not only in the way that they're shot, which is obviously a, a component. The sixty stuff is like you know, apparently. M- even for the actors, it was much more improvisational and like uh, in studio with like actual handheld camera and stuff for the shakiness and docu feel um, of covering that recording period of the band. But uh, then the two performances, I think, are are, are uh, very out of sync. 
apparently it was the director's idea to keep uh, Danu and uh, Cusack kind of away from each other while they filmed so that their performances and interpretations wouldn't influence each other. And it does make sense that they are different because he's a different person once he has become in, in the 70s, once he is so drastically overmedicated and in, incorrectly so. So, like, I understand the function of that. The one thing that I don't, don't understand the function of is that in the 60s stuff, we're viewing it almost like, you know, as a camera, as the audience. We're just watching, especially as a camera because of the way it's shot, um, coverage of his early life. And then the rest of it is really kind of the, the second portion is really from uh, his eventual wife, Melinda uh, Ledbetter, uh, as played by uh, Elizabeth Banks. And it kind of becomes her perspective to the point that she has narration and he doesn't. And like, I understand that, you know, it is about their relationship and how they came together. And it's probably really difficult to find a way to tell a story of Brian Wilson in the 1970s because he was drugged into like almost incoherence by, you know, through shady dealings, as we'll come to discover. So like, it's difficult to tell those stories, but I think that the way that they crash together is awkward. Although like all the beats between the two of them, like structurally line up perfectly. So, like, it's – I don't know why it bothers me, but it does, although the film works in spite of it. I think you bring up some really important points, Dave, um, and actually was definitely a question that I had for the group. As Connor had mentioned, having these two distinct periods in Brian Wilson's life depicted – gives you opportunity to go a little bit more in depth as opposed to a more survey of this figure. But at the same time, as you've pointed out, Dave, like how does breaking up the story and having it portrayed by two different actors create maybe two diverging narratives and maybe two two different approaches and performances in a way that maybe doesn't suit the movie? And I had that question of like, are we kind of just looking at two periods in a person's life or is it like are we constantly comparing these two actors are we constantly comparing the two approaches to the story and I think you've brought up some important points Dave too the camera uh work is different and I I do love that kind of old vintage footage uh, and the camera's sort of positioned behind walls and like in the con- like the control room and like things like that and uh, sort of watching in on the on the recording sessions versus uh, a very different kind of uh, camera approach and narrative style in in later in the life. And like, I guess talking, it's like, oh, like whose performance did you prefer? Which I, is That's like, easy. yeah, I mean, I, I would. Yeah, assume Paul Dano's, <laughs> but um, but and unlike you know another type of biopic approach like uh, I'm not there where it's like a bunch of different actors playing Bob Dylan. It's like the whole point is to sort of like mess with sort of the depiction of an iconic figure, and the whole purpose is to like have people different people inhabiting that character. But that's not the goal of this movie in an experimental way. I think it was just like, oh, he's young in the 60s, he's older in the 80s. Um, So yeah, I think think you bring up some really, really good points uh, about some of the limitations of approaching it in this way. Yeah, and I think while I agree with Dave that it is sometimes an awkward meshing, part of me makes it feel like if this was a stage, like a theatrical piece, you could have the older and younger interacting, like different ways and a different kind of convention maybe things could interlace more seamlessly but 
what I thought was interestingly reflected was Brian Wilson's relationships with folks in the 60s versus his relationships with folks in the 80s and how he is trying to connect and interact with the world. Like, I thought that was, for me, the compelling part of seeing 1960s Brian Wilson versus uh, older Brian Wilson, who's shut in, controlled by Paul Giamatti. Yay or nay? Another, last week we had an older Butter With That reference and Paul Giamatti returns to the podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about him as we get further in. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was interesting thinking about and seeing how Brian Wilson, as we see the Beach Boys kind of at the height of their powers in the 1960s as they're going into recording and planning pet sounds versus in the 80s where Brian Wilson's shut in, his life's being controlled, and Elizabeth Banks and then eventually other folks are trying to help him out of that situation. So I thought viewing the interpersonal relationships of the different eras, um, I thought for me kind of like helped provide a little connective tissue in what script wise or structurally didn't quite always work, but did not derail the film fully. If that makes sense. Did you find yourself wanting more from these era, like, was was there something you thought maybe was possibly missing from uh, elements of 60s, 80s stories? Or do you think we were given enough um, to really grab hold or to really get a full sense of, of where Brian Wilson was in that particular point in his life? I don't have an answer for that because I don't know anything about this dude, but something I do appreciate, and I'm not sure if the movie is trying to do this or I'm just like reading a little bit too much into it, but um, something that I fully believe is that um, mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility, right? Like you need to to keep yourself healthy. You need to, um, when you have the resources available, you need to seek those resources out. And um in the in the 60s we watch Brian go through so, so many ups and downs and i think there's um when you're you know you're setting up for someone to go through like a huge mental crisis a, a mental breakdown um you know you there's been a stereotype or a tradition of always like kind of creating a really like sympathetic character in a lot of ways, maybe not always, but I think that what I appreciated is where we still got to see him being like an insufferable kind of sort of control freak in some ways. And the uh, Mike, I guess um, he sort of seems like the antagonist a little bit because he has a very particular idea of what the Beach Boys should be and should sound like. But there comes a time where he actually says, "Like we would have loved to be on the album rather than just our vocals. Like we would have liked to play those instruments. We would have liked to have written some things." So I thought that that was really cool to to add in. So to give listeners some context, basically Beach Boys went on tour, uh, like a world tour, and Brian Wilson decided to stay back in LA and sit in the and have a bunch of sessions in the studio with this these session musicians, and he basically wrote a whole album without his band. Uh, and as you, well, he out, wanted to make the greatest pop album ever right that was kind of like <laughs> yes. his goal and he the modest and he actually and he actually, <laughs> actually kind of did it he did it <laughs> to his credit 
in you know in in spite of everything. And, and I guess actually that brings up an interesting point that I wanted to ask you guys. Like, does the movie depict? How do you think the movie depicts uh, the creative process and the individual versus the collective effort that it takes to produce an album like this? Like, does Brian Wilson emerge from this movie as sort of like a a, a creative force that was like? In spite of it all, people that trying to intervene with my dream, I individually did this. Or does the movie present any sort of insight into like how the creative process involves so many different people? And I don't, I don't know if I even know like where I stood with that, but I am always interested in the individual versus the collective when it comes to like understanding create the creative process. Uh, I would confidently say yes. Uh you know a little bit of experience being in bands um especially one that i did like most of the writing for and at one point went into a very uh very serious uh issue with mental illness and uh, was not having a good time and was finding myself in a, in a weird place and trying to construct something on my own without too much of their influence unfortunately i was working with two people that were very patient uh and very understanding um but yeah i mean it's even regardless of that anecdotal experience, I mean, the, the experience of being in a band, uh, at least one that is, you know, uh, collaborative, there there are a lot of times like a little bit of a sense of like power struggle or ego that embody um, uh, that are embodied through like the direction or like resistance to cohesion and like uh, all sorts of chemistry and dynamics that are really complex. It's, it, you know, it's a bit of a family a lot of times. And uh I think this movie really speaks to that in a lot of ways. I mean, it's pretty, it's not one-sided because, you know, as, as Sam, you pointed out, like, especially through um, Mike's character, like there, there is rational criticism of some of the things that he's bringing to the table and, you know, perhaps a, a rational questioning of his state of mind and whether or not he can actually get these things done while including the band. But uh, yeah, I, I think it sheds a lot of light on that from a lot of different angles in spite of seeming maybe one-sided. And layered on top of that are family dynamics, because we have his brothers who are in the band, best friend growing up, and his father. It feels almost like, this is going to sound like the most pretentious core of like my theater major self, but almost like Greek tragedy of Brian Wilson's life in the 1960s of like, if I'm not wrong, the 60s era of the film ends with his dad coming in dressed up in like a, a nice suit saying he sold the rights to the beach boys music without the consent of the band members. Cause he was their manager and owned like had the power to do that. And it's like at the height of his creative genius, it's like all taken away like his legacy. And I think that is the family dynamics is such a interesting layer from the first tune, the first plunking of god only knows that's just like mm-hmm. one of the most famous songs of the 20th century to his dad is like yeah maybe that could be something it's like <laughs> it, uh, you know so the family dynamics on top of the creative aspirations and creative difficulties and overbearingness i think makes for a really interesting concoction of character development that is a little uh, like a little missing from the 80s you know 1980s kind of part John Cusack part of the film, but it's so rich and so juicy in the 1960s part of the film. Well, and that's that, that scene was really jaw dropping in a lot of ways. I mean, it's 
you know, it's it's this docu footage the whole time, you know, for really kind of in this in this in the 60s period. But this feels like a cinematic and intimate shot because it's just Danu at the piano, like really kind of nailing down, finishing the song and doing it alone. And it tracks around. And only then do we see that his father is sitting behind him listening. So it, it, it kind of turns this intimate moment into a, a kind of docu reality kind of thing. And um, what his father says to him about perhaps one of the best pop songs of all time uh, is to, it, something to the effect of like, no, that, that's not going to work. It's too dark. And like he, he says that as a criticism of father listening to his son creating like this really passionate and deep work and showing it to him for the first time. His criticism is not like this song is very dark. Are you OK? The criticism is this isn't a good pop song. So it kind of says a lot right in that one scene, which is great. And then 20 minutes later, John Cusack explains how his dad would beat them relentlessly. At least that's how he remembers it. And he is, what, 90% blonde, uh, deaf in one ear because of the beatings. And so that, that I think, is a moment of where 80s, 60s intersection works really well to inform what's going on with Paul Dano as a uh, late 20s, 30-something. That being said, as far as I could find in research, it, uh, his father, of course, suggested that that's not true. Uh, but Brian Wilson also himself has said, like, I'm pretty sure I was largely deaf in that ear since birth. So that is maybe a manufactured detail. Classic biopic. Uh, that's the thing. I, and I, I think even in that scene with his father, I think some of that dialogue is a little bit played up for, you know, biopic drama. Like, I, you know, of course, the father says, oh, this a uh, little tune from the what will become one of the most famous <laughs> songs like oh it'll never work i feel like that's always like a trope like whether it's the record producer or the father figure and so that's for me it felt like it kind of hit that um sort of repeated uh, res- uh yeah that repeated trope i'll say uh that we find a lot in biopics but it does really carry a lot with it as far as the really fractured relationship he had with his father. And then as a Connor, you'll say, uh, you mentioned it, like that kind of lays the groundwork for why Brian Wilson could find himself in the controlling grips of somebody like Eugene Landy, who's mm. who Paul Dano plays where it's like, Ooh, this potentially, this person could be a father figure. They're, like Landy, apparently, after Brian Wilson had been in bed for years, he had gained a ton of weight. And then, like, apparently, Eugene Landy was like, oh, like, you're, I'm going to get you out of bed and and you're going to, like, turn your life around or whatever. But he ultimately became this controlling force that was just eating away at Brian Wilson, diminishing him into nothing, like, basically completely controlling his life and untethering him to reality. So as we mentioned, uh, the controlling therapist is Dr. Eugene Landy, played by uh, the one, the only Paul Giamatti. <laughs> what do you guys think uh, about uh, how the movie, yeah, I guess Giamatti's performance, how the movie kind of lays out this really um, intense, horrific relationship that uh, Brian Wilson has with Landy? I'm going to say Paul Giamatti, yay. Um, I think he brings a different energy to the movie. I think that's, I, I don't know. I, everyone maybe agrees that the 1980 section is like the weakest 
you know, the weaker part of the movie, but I think Giamatti brings a really interesting energy, a different rhythm to um, the film, a really pretty menacing character. And even I think bringing on themes of uh, therapist abuse, you know, controlling someone's life. I think it's a, a theme, the themes that his character brings are not touched on, I think frequently in cinema. And he has one of, I think the most terrifying, he has several terrifying scenes, but one where he's in the control booth toward the end of the movie. He's like, oh, am I missing a conversation? Brian, you know, you want to like be with me. It's it, he, he delivers. I, I think he does more than, um, than I think what I, every time seeing it expected him to deliver what, you know, the expectations of this kind of figure. So I, I, I think Paul Giamatti brings it. Terrifying terrifying performance it's uh it's awesome uh i love paul giamatti and uh when he plays like someone who is uh yeah he, he yeah he looks like paul giamatti he's not like a big tough you know he's not like uh, a really intense presence uh physically but uh, but he plays such a good heavy because he's just so there's this yeah such a weird intensity to it um uh i guess so much so that uh when uh, Brian Wilson did see the picture at, at his first uh, finished screening. Uh, he had like a momentary disassociative episode where he was so threatened by the resemblance that it really upset him. So uh, uh, it, it's one of those things where like, as we'll observe next week, uh, there are ways of packaging biopics that suggest that uh, geniuses were uh at the whim of uh duplicitous madmen or like uh, uh manipulative enablers but that does seem to be genuinely the case in terms of brian wilson's history and uh i think giamatti embodies that threat especially by contrast to um by uh ledbetter's concern genuine concern uh in the latter uh, well the other portion of the movie so i i think functionally yeah he's he's kind of pitch perfect I guess, so the movie really kind of shows how Landy was his legal guardian, would control his every move. And then in the Cusack portion of the movie, we see he's in a Cadillac dealership looking for a new car. And this is where he meets uh, Belinda Ledbetter, uh, Elizabeth Banks's role. And um, that's how they strike up initially casual relationship and then things get more serious. And then it really pits Melinda versus Landy. Melinda recognizes how controlling Landy has become and basically works with other people in Wilson's life to take legal action against uh, Landy. And what we find out though, is that one of his brothers had already died. He, in a, like he drowned. And so you can see that like like Wilson was like looking for more support networks. It's like his band had essentially fallen apart. One of his brothers had died. His band, who was not only his literal family, but also his like creative family had started to, had started to dissolve. So it's like, and the really, his first wife, the relationship with his first wife dissolved as well. He had already had two children with her. And it's interesting. The movie doesn't really go a whole lot into that. And I, I, I think it's, I think the restraint kind of works in that, like, they would have to make a character out of his wife, his first wife. And my guess is that he, I mean, Wilson is still, Brian Wilson's still alive. She's probably still alive. And they're 
probably they didn't want to like stir up shit about that relationship with which I thought that would like that kind of restraint uh, and omission kind of made sense. But really, you could see how this all led to a t- this exploitive relationship that Landy had uh, with with Wilson and then how M- uh, Melinda slowly starts to um, not only build a relationship with Brian Wilson, but also pull him away from the grips of Paul Giamatti. Did you guys think that the relate the movie took enough time with the relationship that uh, Melinda Melinda was building with Brian Wilson? Did that feel like like a pace that made sense? I actually asked my roommate. I said, "Is she in this relationship because he's a beach boy, or?" Is it something else? Because there were so many things that were going. And to be fair, I asked this question before I found out that like uh, Brian Wilson has, um, I guess it's schizophrenia effective. Yeah, he was he was falsely diagnosed with uh, being a paranoid schizophrenic by um, his therapist, but uh, suffers from uh, it's like a schizoactive disorder. No, which is a different thing. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, uh, that was before I found this out. And because, you know, his behavior is so erratic. And I guess if I didn't know, she didn't really know at that point either. And I was like, girl, like some of these things be red flags. They're kind of terrifying. Um, But the way that she was responding felt, I don't know, sincere than not sincere. I don't know. The it, it, put into perspective once I actually found out what was going on, but I, I did question it. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Sam. Cause I had some of those same questions too. It was like, if you're dating and some things that happen, like while they're together ha- happen, like, yeah, I feel like part of your brain would be like red flag, like relationship. Red flag. <laughs> but at the same time, I think, you know, it does sort of, slowly sort of tease out why she might want to spend the rest of her life with, with Brian Wilson, aside from him being famous, rich, you know, musician, um, that he clearly is a brilliant creative. And he has also just a beautiful sensitivity to life, to emotion, to just like being carefree in moments. And I guess I kind of wish that there were a little bit more, maybe a few more scenes that really get to the heart of what the substance is in their relationship. Because the real, I mean, they're still, they they have a really big family. They're still together in the documentary that I watched. She's still like a really, really important part, like of his, I mean, obviously an important part of his life. Uh, you know, she's still his partner and, and really helped him like, grow and really turn things around but i kind of maybe it was elizabeth banks performance totally loving i don't i don't know something about it didn't feel as like grounded uh or at least given up depth into the essence of, of their relationship this could be a little me reading a little too deep or a little off base but i feel like the movie relies on paul dano 1960s of sort of what are the endearing characteristics of Brian Wilson, which the movie doesn't really have quite time to see. You know, Brian Wilson, John Cusack, Brian Wilson, not in a good place. 
while not a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, he is paranoid for the correct reasons that Landry is in his life and will like he is he is rightly paranoid that Landry is going to disrupt his entire life. So I think the movie just didn't have the time to I think flesh out those sweeter details. Uh the moments that do happen, their first date going to a concert, which Landry wasn't that in real life. One of his assistants was, but totally fine that they put Paul Giamatti in there because he did have one of his assistants there. And I think just Brian appreciating the music and them sharing those moments. I think there's, they could only pick like a few moments of that sweetness because so much of this time in his life was horrible. Um, so I think there's, they had a few moments that they could throw in and then sort of being like, oh, in the 60s, let's see what a younger Wilson maybe could bring forward, you know, in the later part of his life. I could be looking too deep, but that's a little bit have I felt the movie was hoping that folks would do. Uh, I'd say that one of the moments that most resonated for me is later in the film when Giamatti is having this uh, uh, confrontation with Banks um, about her, well, his, his, you know, hyper monitoring of Brian's entire life and saying like, essentially like, look, you're getting too close to this. I'm questioning your intentions. Da, 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 da. Like, get out of here. You know, the whole thing uh, up to then I did feel as though it was the dynamic was a little bit odd where like Elizabeth Banks is, I, I guess I never necessarily questioned that she was like fangirling or like anything like that, or like seeking the opportunity of dating a beach boy, but more just that she was like cautiously approaching a situation in which you're, you're seemingly seeing someone that is unstable but she quickly understands that that is a, a condition that is basically being, if not caused by, but exacerbated by this constant surveillance and over-medication, as we see her like first dealing with Paul Giamatti's character. But finally, when it, it comes to that confrontation at the end, it's, it's basically Paul Giamatti saying, like, look, you can't see him because he's sick, it, which is, you know, his justification for his job. He's saying he's sick, so I need to tend to him. And outside influences competitive with me, which kind of makes the bigger statement that, like, you know, she's still committed to it because not only does she feel she has a moral obligation to, you know, make sure that this person gets proper care, but that there is, you know, a, a person behind someone like the, behind someone struggling with illness there, you know, there is and which I think alludes to the 60s stuff and ties it in. There was a richness to Brian Wilson that. Like, like anyone struggling, like any person and any person struggling with mental illness, they're it's they aren't just mental illness. They aren't like an untouchable, weird other thing. They're a person and they should be in, they're entitled to be able to explore those relationships with someone willing. Yeah. And then you have those. Yeah. Like tender, tender moments, um, whether they're like on a on a boat jumping off into the ocean and swimming to the shore. Yeah. Uh, that's Which is like enough. arguably manic, but you know it's well, yeah. it's romantic. It seemed also. a little unsafe, but <laughs> I, I, I thought it was tender. Um, but I, I also, I think, even if I wasn't fully, um, or even if I didn't feel like I got en enough from the scenes between Melinda and Brian, I thought another beautiful thing the movie does is take out lyrics and sort of contextualize them in really interesting ways and really gives you insight into what Wilson was thinking when he was writing songs and how some lyrics take on different meanings in different contexts. 
and also how his bandmates ma- would like question, as we talked about earlier, some of his darker material. But really, it was Brian Wilson being honest with like his emotional state, his mental state, and and then as you kind of were saying, I, you listened to Pet Sounds this morning. I did too, and and just within the context of this movie. I was listening to a lot of the lyrical material and like had a whole kind of other perspective on, on like me meaning. And and so I really loved that a lot of the detail, uh, a lot of the dialogue brings up like some of his lyricism and some really beautiful, like brilliant. uh, Yeah. Like poetic lyrics. Um, But also it highlights like how, if you're in a band that made its fame with pop sunny tunes how as an artist do you convey like your like sadness and the raw feelings that you have with yourself and like the people around you in a vulnerable way and still try to sell records and that's kind of where pet sounds emerged it was like you know all oh, the stuff is, you know, boring or too sad. Like we want happy sunshine. And it's, he's like, that's not where I'm at. <laughs> um, what does he say? I, I can't keep writing songs about the beach and surfing anymore. Yeah. He's like, we don't even surf. <laughs> right. And yeah. And then his dad is like, I just signed a new band. Their, their hit single is Sun, Sun, Sun. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where the real power of a, musical biopic comes from i mean there's so many musical you know or band or music biopics wink wink next week um we'll get into a pretty a, a very recent one but i it's and i think that's the power of music is bringing the emotions what somebody's feeling bringing that forward in the song and the poetry i mean that's what as you know, as just brought up that's what pet sounds is all about and so the process of younger brian wilson kind of exercising a lot of these feelings with his family with his dad with just his general mental state um and i think the process of tinkering and expressing those feelings is just so fascinating um and is a really great anchor for you know about half (laughs) half the movie we uh we covered a ton of ground any other thoughts about love and mercy once again, Paul Danu is, uh, as always, satisfyingly uh, a, a fixture in a movie. It just bums me out that the contrast is uh, John Cusack. I'm really not a big John Cusack fan, but um, I mean, I think he did fine. Uh, I think Elizabeth Banks has some real chops here. I think um, Giamatti, as we said, as we covered, is appropriately terrifying. Uh, a little bit tropey, but interesting in its uh, approach. Whether or not that works. Uh, from like framing perspective or not in terms of pacing and structure, I think it's it's teased out perfectly. So yeah, I I really, really like this one. And it really kind of brought me back to the boys because it's been a while since I've really sunk my teeth into them too much, but uh, I mean, smile and uh, pet sounds are both fantastic. So it's been fun to go back. I think it's interesting that it's, I think it's hard for a movie to pull off the idea of like, Oh, we're hearing a prototype version of a hit. Uh, I mean, most of the songs on that album are hits, are incredibly recognizable. And so it's like, oh, that key's a little off. Or when he's plucking the, um, doo, doo, like, you know, it's like, oh, something's oh, like with a little the, off. Uh, the, 
the clothes yeah, the pin, or the hairpins yeah, on the, the piano, like oh. the prepared piano, so brilliant. And so it's like that could be so cringy, I think, in a lot of movies. But because this film has such a reverence for the actual craft of song making and recording, um, it's it's incredibly fascinating as like this insight into the actual making of a of an album. Um, One of my favorite documentaries is of the recording of the original uh, company soundtrack, Sondheim's original Broadway production of Company, such a fascinating behind-the-scenes look of, in the 70s, recording a Broadway cast album, all the personalities like Elaine Stritch, who um, is a powerhouse but was incredibly difficult to work with, and so it had that handheld camera feel, and so I just really love the vibe of, and it felt so authentic and genuine, and not just like pandering to like, oh, I know that song, I know Good Vibrations, that's, that's that song, I know it, it felt very like, I don't know, just genuine, authentic, and not just um, appeasing folks who know, you know, the six song, you know, six of the most famous songs from Pet Sounds. It just felt very genuine. Yeah, because it takes its time, as you said, Connor, uh, at the beginning of the episode. It really spends a lot of time showing Wilson in the studio with, I, I believe, real musicians in the in the shooting of the of the of the movie as well. And Paul Dano does such a great job of, of, uh, yeah, sort of inhabiting that character of, of conducting, directing, uh, playing through little, uh, little phrases and, uh, getting excited. And the, and when they're harmonizing around the same microphone, it's just so beautiful. Mm. It's a movie with a real attention to how songs are composed, Mm. which I, I always love. So that's Love and Mercy. Uh, check it out. Write us emails. Tell us what you think. I actually butter with that poll. Okay. Uh, do your parents hate the Beatles or the Beach Boys or both? <laughs> Let us know. Uh, take sides. We, I, like, think, we, I think we, we should make fight. an Instagram post. An Instagram post or yes. put it on a story. Mm-hmm. Going to have to get some metrics on this. And maybe we'll have to get some others on the podcast. You know, <laughs> yeah. we brought the parents on once. Your mom, my mom, Duke it out, Beach Boys, Beatles. <laughs> yeah, my mom so will probably much... just be like, I like them both. <laughs> <laughs> so much uh, material there. And uh, stay tuned for next week. We got a big rocking episode for you guys. And as always, check us out on the socials and uh, have a great whatever. Get around, get around, I get around. Anybody can back me up? (laughs) Get around, I get around. This has been a movie.